Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It was the threat of civil war, not the sundering of democratic norms, that forced Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's hand for now. On Monday night, Netanyahu spoke to the Israeli people, saying he would pause his government's highly controversial efforts to overhaul the country's judiciary. When there's an opportunity to avoid civil war through dialogue, I, as prime minister, am taking a time out for dialogue, Netanyahu said. Quote, we insist on the need to bring about the necessary corrections in the legal system. We have the opportunity to achieve a broad consensus. This is a very worthy goal. End quote. For the past three months, Israeli society has been profoundly divided. Wave after wave of protests and demonstrations against Netanyahu's proposed reforms, drawing people like Yaniv Segal into the streets. Past 12 weeks, uh, Saturday is the center of the week because of the massive demonstrations that we have all around Israel. So Sunday, normally, we uh, rest a bit from, uh, from the demonstrations of the weekend. On Sunday, Yaniv was relaxing at home in Tel Aviv. He just wrapped up a Zoom meeting with other activists. And then suddenly we heard that Netanyahu fired his Minister of Defense. On Saturday, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, a member of Netanyahu's own Likud party, spoke out against the judicial overhaul. The protest movement had spread to elite Israeli army units that declared they would not serve if the judicial legislation passed. Well, that prompted Gallant to speak out. So Netanyahu fired him. The news spread across Israel after midnight to people like Yaniv Segal. We got messages on WhatsApp from different groups of like, uh, we go out now, like, go out right now. And... We took the motorbike and we arrived to Kaplan, the major uh, place where the demonstrations are in Tel Aviv. And we just took the Ayalon Highway. What we do in every uh, demonstration is uh, playing drums and marching, like the most non-violent thing you can do. Really like, no, we have a lot of energy, we scream, we have megaphones, but it's non-violent and it's not and then it was like, it wasn't violent, but people were barricading the highway of Ayalon. Someone started fires, and it seems like something we should do in order to pull up the alarm, you know, like to show that we are not going to let it pass like that quietly. The protesters numbered in the hundreds of thousands. In Jerusalem, protesters surrounded Israel's parliament, the Knesset. The nation's biggest labor union went on strike. So did universities, banks, even hospitals. Israeli embassies closed their doors. Flights were grounded at Ben-Gurion Airport. Yaniv says that massive action from Israelis is a measure of their awakening realization about the state of Israeli democracy. 
now we understand how fragile our country is, how much the lack of constitution is costing us right now, and how much our rights are not promised. We are a young country of 75 years old. After 2,000 years, we didn't have a, a Jewish entity in Israel, and they are just putting all that in risk. They're undermining our democracy. Prime Minister Netanyahu has paused the judicial reforms, but he has not abandoned them. The prime minister said his government will reconsider the legislation following the Knesset's Passover recess, meaning Israel may be at the beginning of a long struggle over its democratic identity. Yaniv says he's certain Israelis can stand the test. Yes, I am. Yes. And the only defender is the citizens of Israel. I am, for the first time in my life, really for the first time, I'm patriotic. I'm full of proud and love to this place. You know, my mother is Italian. I have an Italian passport. I can live elsewhere, but I don't want to. I saw the people that were on the highway and they were by hundreds of thousands. And it's the most courageous and beautiful people that I saw. And it's the citizens of this country. And I, I trust us. Yaniv Segal, he's one of the leaders of the Pink Front, a group of young activists in Israel. Well, it is stunning to hear authentic concerns over civil war in Israel. The nation long held in the U.S. government's eyes to be the essential example of democracy in the Middle East. Our guest today says the unrest in Israel is not due simply to current right-wing efforts at judicial reform. She says Israel's democratic fragility dates back to the nation's founding. Dalia Shendlin is a public opinion researcher and international political strategist. She's also a fellow at Century International and a columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, and she's in Tel Aviv. Dalia, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. So first of all, Dahlia, I have to say it, it, it was stunning to hear um, you know, people at the highest levels of the Israeli government saying the words like possible civil war. What's your response to that? Well, I think that it, this is uncharted territory for the entire country. There is a great sense of hostility. And, you know, as much as your earlier guest was, you know, very exhilarated by all the people who have been going out, you know, for 12 weeks in a row, everywhere in the country, being very creative and very peaceful about the kinds of demonstrations they've been holding and pulling in so many different kinds of communities to stand up for democracy and oppose the judicial reforms. Of course, there is another side of the population who is equally kind of barricaded into their perspective that this reform needs to happen. And primarily, I think they are devoted to the current government. This this is the 48.3% of the Israeli population or the Israeli voters, I should say, who voted for the members of the coalition, the parties that make up the current governing coalition. They may not have fully prioritized this particular kind of judicial reform when they went to the uh, when they went to the ballot to vote on November 1st last year, but they certainly trust that this government is doing the right thing and they generally share the criticism that this government has advanced of Israel's judiciary, particularly the Supreme Court. And those two sides are living almost parallel ideological universes. And the tension has risen very, very high. Now, it wouldn't be the first time, of course, that Israel has had deep, deep internecine tensions. 
We've had our share of violence in the past, of course. But I will say one thing about the threat of civil war, uh, even though Israel's own president, uh, Itzhak Herzog, who is a ceremonial figure, but has definitely taken a, a, an important role here. He himself warned of the potential to reach a civil war. And by that, he meant violence between the two camps of citizens. I have to say that I think Israel is still pretty far away from actual violence on a, on a broad scale, you know, other than skirmishes between citizens. But I will say that when the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, on Monday night announced the postponement of this legislation, a temporary suspension of the legislative process in the name of preventing a civil war, I think he was trying to present a particular message and portray himself as the only person in the country capable of withholding those forces. I don't think that reflects the truth of why he made that decision. I think that there are numerous other things that would come first on his list mm. of how he of, of reasons why he finally, after three months of these dramatic protests, decided to suspend the legislation, including the grave economic cost of the general strike that was called that very day. This you know kind of thing costs the country billions of shekels every day, and it. Even though that was the first general strike, there had been many disruptions of work days, not only weekend days, during the last three months. And of course, the severe danger and warnings from the chief of staff about the lack of preparedness of the army due to low morale and reservists saying they're not mm. going to show up for training and the real concern about Israeli security, not to mention U.S. pressure. I think we have right. to realize that the president has taken a rather unprecedented position here of making very cautious statements, but statements that nobody could miss in recent months. And I think all of those factors came together in addition to his wanting to present an image of the person who could prevent civil war. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, exactly what the proposed judicial reforms um, uh, are in, in a few minutes. But I actually want to just take a step back and, and provide um, me and listeners with a common set of facts uh, in terms of the current situation in Israel. So we have this uh, coalition uh, that Net Netanyahu has at, at the moment. Who is in his I in governing coalition? Because I've I've read it uh, as being described as the most right wing government in Israeli history. Yeah, it's important to remember that Israel always has a coalition. No one party has ever won a majority of parliamentary seats. And we do have a parliamentary system, which means that our executive or our, our government is drawn from a majority of parliamentary members. In that sense, there's not a total separation between the legislature and the executive. And that's an important point to understand as we get into the judicial reform. But because no one party has ever won a majority, and we do have a very fragmented system, every Israeli government is a coalition. And we have had plenty of coalitions over the years that were made up of all right-wing parties, in which Mr. Netanyahu's party, the Likud, represents what Israelis view or did view for most of its history as a mainstream right-wing party. And when we say right-wing in Israel and left-wing, we're mainly talking about nationalist themes, themes that relate to territorial expansion or withdrawal with relation to the Palestinian territories and occupation, uh, support for negotiated peace and a two-state solution or preference for greater Israel. Those are the themes that define Israel's right and left spectrum more than anything else. And Likud was considered the mainstream center-right party. And there have been governments that were only made up of parties with Likud and the right in the past. In fact, not even very long ago, we had a government like that between 2015 and 2019. The reason why we many of us consider this the most right-wing government is that the party immediately 
to the right of Likud is called Religious Zionism. They ran as a, it's actually an amalgam of three smaller factions, very common in Israeli politics. It's a very fragmented society. And this party represents not only people who consider themselves to be religious Orthodox Jews, who are always uh, supportive of a more nationalist line and territorial expansion, support settlements, want Israel to retain control of the West Bank uh, and uh, control over the exterior of Gaza. But this is a particular kind of community within that religious Zionist community, even though they so call Dial- themselves religious Dalia, Zionism. Stand by. I've got to take a quick break. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're joined today by Dahlia Shendlin. She is a fellow at Century International and a columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, and she's with us from Tel Aviv. And Dahlia, I'm sorry I had to cut you off there earlier to take that quick break, but you were okay. describing to us the, the other members of this uh, coalition that, that Netanyahu has right now. Yeah, and I was talking about the Religious Zionism Party, which is actually an amalgam of three other parties. And this is really the most extreme version of the religious Zionism, uh, religious Zionist community that we've seen in a a party configuration in Israel. These people are basically, some of them are disciples of the late Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was a proponent of Jewish supremacy back in the 1980s. And, you know, these are people who have essentially adopted and adopted his way of thinking that Jews should have a supreme position in Israel and privilege, and they are always targeting Arabs and uh, trying to advance a much more militarist and hardline and authoritarian understanding of society. And so that party came in actually third place in the Israeli elections, and they are the second biggest coalition partner. And beyond that, there are two other parties representing Israel's ultra-Orthodox communities, the uh, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews of European descent, and the party that is essentially of ultra-Orthodox leadership of the Mizrahi, the Middle Eastern Jewish community. Not all of their voters are ultra-Orthodox, but they're mostly traditional or religious, and that usually goes along with very hardline right-wing views in Israel. So this is a a four-party coalition with all the internal factions that is almost entirely, three of those four parties are far to the right of Likud, although at this point, Likud has changed so much under Netanyahu's leadership that I would say a large portion of Likud's most senior figures and its ministers are not really that different from various figures within religious Zionism in terms of the kinds of policies they stand for. 
And therefore, as a result, many of us thought that they would have a very easy time advancing their policies and even establishing the government. But all of that turned out to be a little more complicated, uh, certainly in negotiating the establishment of this coalition. But the one mm -hmm. thing that they all agreed on and they swore to in the coalition agreements, which are public, is that they would advance judicial reform in their language. That's the terminology they use and that they would all support the judicial reform. And the, by judicial reform, they meant constraining the independence of the judiciary, particularly the powers and the authorities of the Supreme Court, but also other aspects of the judiciary. Okay, so so this brings us to the legislation that has pulled all those Israelis into uh, the streets for the past three months here. More specifically, uh, the proposed reforms include um, rules that would render the Supreme Court unable right, to provide meaningful uh, review or oversight from uh, regarding legislation coming out of the executive. And I believe also um, uh, it would allow uh, the government essentially to appoint judges in certain positions here. I mean, you've, you've described it as an all-out assault on the judiciary, destroying judicial independence in the, in the country. Why? Yeah, I think that's very hard to see it in any other way because it's really very well-rounded. It's a very elaborate program. The program was largely developed before the elections. Uh, it was published in very similar form by the Religious Zionism Party. They made a big deal out of it. And it's a series of laws. I mean, you've described two of the most important and the most prominent, uh, giving the coalition, our executive power, essentially total control effectively total control over the appointment of uh, Supreme Court justices and other justices, but particularly they're interested in choosing the Supreme Court justices, and severely curtailing, if not crushing altogether, the ability of the Supreme Court to uh, exercise judicial review of legislation and of executive action. Uh, they want to try to ban the su Supreme Court from ruling at all on what Israel calls basic laws which have uh, disputed status, but they are something like higher laws. We call them sometimes quasi-constitutional laws. They want to, their further plans, I mean, there are about eight different laws that we consider part of the overall effort. Only one of them was immediately in play in the coming week, but all of the others they are trying to advance. They are at different stages of the legislative process. And these include things like making all legal advisors to Israel's ministries into political loyalists rather than professional independent mm. legal figures, splitting the position and weakening the position of the attorney general. Um, you know, there are so many different aspects that they want to do to make sure that the judiciary is essentially under political control. Now, we have to see that in light of Israel's bigger system. And without going into an entire civics lesson in terms of Israeli you know, governance, the main thing to keep in mind is that every democracy, as every listener knows, has checks and balances. Otherwise, it's not a democracy because you have consolidation of power. In Israel, for all sorts of structural and historic reasons, we actually have an executive with very few structural constraints on its power. So I mentioned before that there is not a total separation between the legislature and the executive because the executive is drawn from a parliamentary majority, which means the parties of the coalition have a majority in parliament. We don't have a formal written constitution, and those are for historic reasons we can get into. Mm -hmm. uh, we mm -hmm. don't have a president who holds a veto. We don't have two chambers of parliament. We don't have regional representation. We're not part of any international courts. And so there's actually no structural limitation on what the executive can do. And until the 1990s, there was very little constraint on the kind of laws that the legislature could make. And only in the 1990s, the Knesset itself passed certain what we call basic laws, 
stipulating certain human rights. And based on that, the Supreme Court ruled a few years later that it would exercise judicial review over legislation that it believed violated the rights that the Knesset had enshrined in law. But that leaves so much open to debate and essentially a lack of checks and balances other than one enduring institution in Israeli society, and that is the independent judiciary. So this is why right. I think the penny has dropped like for so many Israelis that all of a sudden they realized, as, as your earlier guest put it, that, that, that things are very fragile. Uh, now, I should also point out that there are citizens of Israel who have been well aware of this for a long time. And I'm talking particularly about Israel's Palestinian or Arab citizens who have a collective memory of living for the first 20 years of Israel's existence under a military regime in which they had no civil rights uh, or, you know, and many of their human rights, other than the franchise, I should say, they were allowed to vote, but not under the kinds of conditions we would consider free democracy. Uh, they are subject to certain laws that are discriminatory. So, you know, many Palestinians, whether they're living under occupation or as citizens of Israel, have long thought that Israeli democracy has not protected them. But I think for the, you know, the 75% of Israeli citizens who are Jewish, they are just realizing that something they took for granted was actually hanging by a thread, a right. robust and strong thread of the independent judiciary. And that's why these changes are so frightening. Right. So, so just to, to reiterate, uh, you, you're saying that the judiciary essentially, and we'll get into the reasons why, serves as the only meaningful check on the executive uh, in Israel. But I also want to point out that, um, you know, there's the, the sort of why now question, because there has been this right wing critique of the judiciary in Israel for some time now. Benjamin Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister previously too. Is it that there's this sort of perfect storm in Israeli politics at the moment with this extreme right wing coalition, um, and also Netanyahu's own? You know, he's got a corruption, a set of corruption charges against him that are working its way through the Israeli judiciary. Is that why we're seeing this sort of uh, the the push now for the most comprehensive changes to? To, to the judicial system there. Absolutely, it's a perfect storm. And as you correctly point out, the, the criticism of the balance of powers in Israel and the role of the judiciary, and specifically the accusation of, that judicial activism has overstepped its bounds and constrains the ability of the executive to govern, that has been a right-wing accusation that has become really uh, one of the rallying cries of the right-wing parties, I would say primarily since 2009, but the dispute over authority, you know, where authority where authority flows from in Israel goes way back historically. But there are communities over the decades who have considered that when the court tries to, you know, in any way advance things like equality or uh, separation of religion and state or puts or, or on the very rare occasion when the court has ruled against, for example, a West Bank settlement. So those communities, the religious people who do not want separation of religion and state, or the pro-settler community who do not want constraints on a single settlement, believe the court has been somehow an enemy. And that attitude, I think, was given a boost in the early two, in the from 2009 roughly onwards, as the Likud itself under Netanyahu began making common cause with the illiberal populist nationalist direction, which certainly co coincided with similar trends around the world. And we can name mm -hmm. names if we want to, but in Israel, we talk a lot about Viktor Orban in Hungary and in Poland and, of course, Donald Trump. So those forces converged. And Netanyahu, again, presented himself through much of the 2000s as the person who always kind of trafficked 
in this nationalism and the ethnic incitement in a way between the more radical elements, uh, hardline and even racist elements of his governments. But he always presented himself as the person who could hold back those extreme forces. And he made rather eloquent statements about the importance of an independent judiciary, except, you know, and it's very popular in Israel now to replay the recordings of these statements that he's made to say, look, he once upon a time supported a strong and independent judiciary. But the interesting thing is that every time we replay those quotes of Netanyahu, they're all from 2012. You don't hear mm -hmm. him saying too much after that. And then, of course, by, by 2017, he was uh, under serious investigation. By 2018, we realized the investigations were coming closer to indictment. At the, in late 2019, the attorney general announced that he would be indicting Netanyahu, and he was formally indicted in early 2020 on three different cases of corruption. And that was a major turning point in that Netanyahu himself fully embraced not only the attack on the judiciary in general, uh, and not quite for the same reasons, but a, a embraced a full-out deep state narrative. Suddenly it was the mm. judiciary and the attorney general and the state prosecutor and the police chief. These were his own appointees. The police chief and the attorney general were his personal appointees. But they, of course, in, in this narrative, were in cahoots with the media, and they were all conspiring to bring him down and, and, and shed his blood is a term that he likes to say a lot. So he joined the kind of pile-on against the Israeli judiciary. And then I think we have to add two more factors to explain the why now. The first is, let's say, demographic, because the right-wing voter base in Israel has been growing over time in general, partly because of demographics and partly because of the, you know, kind of snowball effect of having a hardline nationalist right-wing government in power for so long, since 2009. Remember, Israel is relatively a young country, demographically re relative to other Western countries. And those are people, you know, big swath of the voter population has now grown up knowing only Netanyahu's very hardline nationalist governments and the idea that to be left-wing is somehow to be a traitor. So there is a demographic factor. And then there's the political factor. Netanyahu was unable to have an outright win in four consecutive elections since 2019. He was only able to kind of reach a stalemate politically. By the fifth election, okay, after, you know, the entire country was exhausted, the fifth election was held on November 1st, 2022. And for the first time in that cycle, the party's loyal to Netanyahu won an outright majority in parliament. They didn't win a great majority of the absolute number of voters, but never mind. Now they had their, their, their strong parliamentary majority of 64 out of 120 seats. Netanyahu and all the coalition partners are well aware that they will not have this chance so easily again, despite uh, the demographics okay. that I just mentioned. There is an interplay here. We can argue it, but I think that they know that this is, a, you know, a, a kind of heaven sent chance to do what some of the religious parties consider to be divine work. Right. Okay. So, so, so Dahlia, you know, um, it seems like there are uh, themes here that first of all, feel very familiar to ears in the United States, yes. to be honest, but, yes. but I want to, um, I, I, I want to, um, we've got a couple minutes before um, our next break. And really what fascinates me most is what you have written about here and that in order to understand what we see erupting in Israel now, we actually have to go back to the country's founding because we have the similar tensions over the desire for a strong executive and concerns from the religious right uh, over what would... Um, you know, what would be the basis of uh, law, the rule of law in Israel and the fact that Israel has no written constitution, even though 
I believe, as you've you've noted, that was one of the requirements of the creation of the Israeli state. So, so just briefly tell us about like the first couple of years um, of Israel as a nation and why it's so important to understand what's happening now. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the issue of the Constitution is a very good prism for understanding this, even though I want to be cautious and not convey that if we had a Constitution, we would avoid and solve all of these problems. I mean, America has a wonderful Constitution, and there are still many very deep <laughs> fissures in good American point. life. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it is a very good prism. It is a good prism because it reflects the tensions. And I think, as you point out, uh, in 1947, when the United Nations General Assembly adopted what we mostly think of as the partition plan, UN Resolution 181, it also included a very elaborate requirement for a very progressive liberal democratic constitution for the new states that were to be created. Israel was committed to it. I mean, Israel wasn't Israel yet, but the leaders of the pre-state community were committed to it. They began working on drafts, but immediately the real tension, one of the most important tensions, was the fact that some of the critical leaders of the Jewish community who became parties that would be part of the governing coalition from the very beginning were the religious parties, mostly the ultra-Orthodox parties, but to some extent, even the national, what we now call national religious parties, who simply rejected the authority of the state flowing from the people. And this is, I think, you know, the foundation of democracy is the idea that authority flows from the people who elect their representatives to enact the people's will. They are accountable to the people. The religious parties never truly accepted that, certainly not in the beginning. And then there are interesting shifts along the way. But from their perspective, there was no constitution other than the Jewish documents of Jewish law and the Torah. So the only authority for them is God. And therefore, they were some of them in the early, in the pre-state years were even against the idea of a, sec, of a secular civic state. But never mind, they decided to support it but they certainly couldn't go so far as to accept a constitutional document that would draw authority from the people and hold the people and the state accountable to civil law. And so I think on that level, that created the first tension that you know Israel's leader at the time, Ben-Gurion, realized that if he forced the country to move ahead towards a written constitution, those religious parties would not participate in the coalition. They could tear down the government. Now, there could have been parties representing Israel's Palestinian citizens or Arab citizens at the time, but those parties were not independent. As I mentioned, they were, the, the citizens were, well, they weren't citizens yet. Nobody were citizens yet, but they were under a military regime. They didn't have the real freedom. And in any case, the new Israeli state would never have wanted to put Arab parties into their governing coalition. In fact, they never did until 2021. That's mm -hmm. how long it took to have an independent, true representative of the Arab community who are, of course, native to the region in Israel's executive. All of these tensions yeah. came into play and disputes over which branch of government really should have the authority. Ben-Gurion certainly wanted as much of it for himself as he could get. And that's very reflective of where we are now as well. Yeah. Well, today we are speaking with Dahlia Shendlin. She is a public opinion researcher and international political strategist, a fellow at Century International, and a columnist at the Israeli newspaper Haaretz as well. And we're trying to understand what are really the roots of uh, the democratic crisis that's going on right now in Israel. How do we understand how the nation got there? So we'll talk a lot more about that when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? 
I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Dalia Shendlin joins us today from Tel Aviv, Israel. She's a columnist at Haaretz and a fellow at Century International. And we're talking about what the real roots are, uh, the historic roots that have led to this explosion of protest uh, and concern over the government of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, and concerns about uh, the fragility of Israeli democracy. Um, and Dahlia, you know, it's interesting, this phrase Israeli democracy, I, I've used it several times because, as you well know, you know, in the United States, the United States government clearly has said for several generations now that Israel is the example, the example of a, of a healthy functioning democracy uh, in in the Middle East. But, you know, I've read your a lot that you've written about um the history of Israeli politics. And you've said some interesting things that even though the Supreme Court in Israel or the judiciary serves as the primary and most important check on executive power in Israel, uh, and that in the 90s especially, the court made a lot of rulings um, to uh, strengthen the the rights of, of Israelis, you still say that doesn't necessarily mean it's made Israel into a democracy, that in fact you have a hard time saying the phrase Israeli democracy these days. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not just these days. In fact, I think one of the most surprising things when I talk to people about this is just how undemocratic Israel was in its earliest decades, which is interesting because in collective memory, Israelis tend to look up to those early decades and the founding figures of the country as their heroes, which of course many countries do. Everybody thinks the founding figures are their heroes. But Israel was a lot less democratic then. I mean, remember that the military regime that Israel now employs to occupy the Palestinians, to govern, to rule Palestinian life in the West Bank and Gaza and different ways in East Jerusalem, that was a military regime that acted over Israel's own citizens. Uh, And that is a fundamentally different thing, even though from the perspective of the person living under that regime, it probably doesn't matter. But still, you know, to think about, imagine an American citizen born in America, born in, you know, Oregon and and living under martial law and having, you know, soldiers enter your house and search and maybe take things and just arbitrarily detain you for any sorts, you know, and having no basic civil rights. That's a very different environment. But one of my major points is that Israel was less democratic than for Jews as well. Again, because it didn't have those basic laws that were only passed in 1992 guaranteeing certain human rights, even those are piecemeal, didn't have a written constitution. And the executive was able to make all sorts of uh, policies and pass all sorts of laws that limited things that we would consider normal in Israel. We didn't, we don't even to this day have guaranteed uh, laws guaranteeing freedom of speech. The Supreme Court had to read that 
into Israeli law through its rulings early in 1953, but still, all of these things are piecemeal. Now, the mm. fact is that Israel ended its military regime over its own citizens in 1966, but then half a year later began its occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and uh, annexed East Jerusalem and annexed the Golan Heights and the Sinai. Those all met a different fate, but Israel, as we all know, still controls uh, the West Bank and f at the extra, again, the perimeters of Gaza. And in that sense, Israel is enacting an extremely undemocratic policy. It's almost not a matter of extremes. It's either, in this sense, it's just a binary. There is nothing democratic about the occupation, and Israel is doing it. Now, Israel has portrayed, as certainly in the early years, that this might be temporary, that the territories might be negotiated with other Arab countries in, you know, to be returned or given somehow to the other Arab countries or parts of them in return for peace agreements, which is essentially what happened with Egypt. But over time, We're now, you know, 55 years, almost 56 years past 1967, and Israel has built a legal, physical, and military infrastructure that is so entrenched that it's very hard to argue that Israel one day intends to withdraw from the territories. And not just right. that, the politics of it have changed. So the Israeli government has said over and over that it does not plan to withdraw. It wants to have full sovereignty. It wants to annex those territories. And it definitely does not want to give the Palestinians full rights as citizens. To be honest, Palestinians probably wouldn't want to be Israeli citizens. But the point is that Israel is enacting very undemocratic practices in a permanent way. And so, you know, we've I think we've all become accustomed to assessing the health of Israeli democracy as if there is a true separation between what we used to call green line Israel, Israel within its pre-1967 uh, mm -hmm. region, you know, it wasn't ever a, a hard international border, or what we could also call the 1949 armistice lines, and Israel after that. But that line is gone. No Israeli can find it. Israel's mm. uh, settlements have been have expanded so far over the green line in ways that are so permanent that most people can't really figure out when they've crossed it or not. Yeah. So there's no real so, physical border. And I would even argue politically, just to finish the point, that politically yeah. and institutionally, Israel applies laws, certain parts of Israeli civil law in very complicated ways, working together with the army. You can't really claim that it's only the military governing in the West Bank. Uh, Gaza is a different story. But it, I think that the occupation is almost inseparable from the Israeli state at this point. And that's why I think mm. that we have to qualify uh, our conceptually when we call Israel a democracy. So what would you call it then, though? Because it still also has, <laughs> as you've noted, some very democratic structures, including the, though it's hanging by a thread, independent judiciary. Yes. Well, I, I, I say that there is democracy in Israel. In other words, there are some very robust aspects of democracy. It's really not just the judiciary. Of course, we have a very robust electoral institution. We have very frequent elections. If we talk about free and fair elections at regular intervals, Israel has free and fair and very regular elections, uh, too regular, I would say, uh, because most of our governments don't last a full four-year term. Now, again, fairness. I mean, most people, many, uh, five million people who are living under some form of Israeli control are not able to vote. But to the extent that people are able to vote, the elections are conducted with integrity. And we do have largely, you know, freedom of press, uh, you know, an indep relatively independent press at this point, um, way past the years when most uh, publications were, media were party arms. So I think most importantly, certainly among Israel's Jewish citizens and very much among Israel's Arab citizens too. Interestingly, the Palestinian citizens of Israel have a high expectation 
of democracy. And Israel's Jewish citizens have a cultural tradition, you know, in modern statehood and therefore an expectation of democracy. And I think that is in some ways as important as the actual laws, constitutional issues, you know, structural institutions. People expect to live in a free society and to live based on a measure of equality. That's why there is so much tension and frustration and many times anger among Israel's Arab citizens because they do expect Israel to be democratic. And they have taken a lot of they have they have taken a lot of initiative and agency over the years, certainly since they've been free of military rule after 1966, to advance their own causes as well, often in partnership with Jewish Israelis through civil society, through civic engagement, through you know advocacy and uh, uh, legal advocacy as well. In those, in all of those ways, there is there are democratic aspects of Israel. There are robust democratic institutions, and we should not deny that. All of those mm-hmm. are the reasons why I think Israel does have the responsibility to assess itself as most democracies would, which is to really ask, do we provide equality for all the people we rule? And the answer is no, but it has the capacity to be democratic. Mm. Well, and I think that expectation, as you noted, and the the fear of that ex- those expectations being broken or violated is one of the reasons why it seems to me that so many hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been th- activated over the past three months. But I wonder what you think might happen next, right? Because Netanyahu says, well, this is a time to, like, come to a new consensus, Um yeah. Is that even possible? Because look, his government uh, ha- has really laid, already laid its cards out on the table. We know what we know what his government wants, um, and it sounds like anything short of that would be unacceptable, especially to really key members of the government, like the national, the head of national security in Israel. So, I mean, how much consensus could be possible now? I think the word consensus is almost totally irrelevant here. I think that for the most part, uh, the parties who are now entering some sort of a negotiation or deliberation, dialogue is what we're calling it, ever since Monday night, uh, have very high expectations of a very abject failure. Both sides completely distrust each other. The government and the parties of the coalition, as you pointed out and as we've discussed, are absolutely committed to passing some sort of legislation that constrains the judiciary. Their aim is to move Israel towards a path with fewer constraints on the executive and on the legislature and make, in order to enact policies that make Israel, frankly, more theocratic, uh, to advance annexationist policies, to advance inequality um, and allow for greater Jewish privilege. Those are the policies they want to enact and they do not want the constraints of the judiciary. So they are willing to negotiate over the specifics of how to get it done. But that's the path they're on. Whereas the opposition parties are trying to negotiate for a completely different outcome. Uh, and so I, you know, if you're a professional negotiator, I think sometimes you, know, you try to agree on the aim and then figure out how to get there. But the two sides have completely different aims. Now, it's true that among the protest movement and among some of the political opposition leaders, primarily, I would say, Yair Lapid, who is the head of the second biggest party in parliament, the main centrist party called Yeshatid, has been making uh, big statements about advancing a constitution. And the protest mm-hmm. movements and many of the young people chanting in the streets have been demanding a constitution. It's as if they woke up and realized that without that, we really have very little to protect citizens. But uh, I think that all of the reasons why I briefly pointed out that Israel was unable to agree on a constitution in the past, honestly, those divisions have just gotten deeper. The religious communities, mm. particularly the ultra-Orthodox and religious Zionism now for somewhat different reasons, 
although there are moderate religious people who believe in the integration of democracy and Jewish practice, which I believe is possible too, but they've kind of been overshadowed by these much more extreme political figures. Uh, those communities have gotten bigger demographically. They wield more political power as a result. Um, and the Likud has essentially followed in that direction for its own reasons, as we've talked about. So I think that the kinds of the, the rifts in Israeli society and the desire for more consolidated power that, the, that Netanyahu himself shares personally because he wants to protect himself by staying in power are not exactly auspicious conditions for resolving the very, very deep rifts and disagreements, especially over the very sources of authority in the state that plagued the constitutional process from the beginning of statehood. On the other hand, I don't want to be totally pessimistic because we are seeing things we've never seen before. I mean, the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are chanting in the streets, if you don't give us equality, you know, we will we will continue the protests, basically, or we will shut down the highways again, or uh, we won't stop protesting until we have a constitution. I'm giving you my rough translation of some of the chants that some of the youngest mm -hmm. protesters have been have been yelling and very passionately. I mean, these are not just people who are reciting slogans. They've invented these slogans themselves out of a deep sense of need. So I do think that there are people also, in, in again, including on the moderate right wing, who say, you know, the traditional right wing in Israel stood for liberal values and individual values. Yes, they were always nationalist. Yes, they wanted more territorial expansion. But they also believed in independent judiciary because in the early years of statehood, those right wing parties were the minority. And so, of mm -hmm. course, they wanted minority protections. So I think this all comes down to who's in power, ultimately. Um, right. And I think what the state has never really done is say we have fundamental principles that transcend any one political power. And the reason is Israel has not been willing to commit itself. This is another interesting thing. We have many very progressive laws. We have plenty of laws that guarantee gender equality, pay equality, uh, that um, uh, that sanction or pre uh, prevent, prohibit discrimination in the commercial sector. And, you know, so we have piecemeal guarantees for the kinds of democratic values that you would see in any democracy, but we have no one constitutional law guaranteeing equality of all citizens. It's like Israel has a commitment problem. We know how to do democracy. We just don't want to commit to it because we want the ability mm. to also be undemocratic at the same time. Right. You know, when you said that it just comes down to who's in power, um, that brought back to my mind, what you had said earlier in the show, that, you know, there is this strong divide that's roughly 50-50, right? I think the number you gave was like 48.5% of Israelis uh, voted for the current uh, governing coalition. So I mean, we've yes. just got a couple of minutes left here, Dahlia. I, you know, I want to, again, Israel looms so large in U.S. policy here. I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners, you know, why they should really care about not only what's happening in Israel now, but what could happen in the future, and if the U.S. has any role to play whatsoever. Well, let me start with your last question. The U.S. has already played a role. I mean, the U.S. has not, but the Biden administration has not taken a particularly assertive role in trying to advance Israeli-Palestinian peace, which I think would be the biggest way to advance Israeli democracy. But on this particular issue, I have to say that in the beginning, uh, when the reforms were announced, I thought the Biden administration was being pretty passive about that too, treating it as an internal domestic issue. But the fact that the president has weighed in on it on himself personally, including just last night, contradicting his own ambassador, I should say, by mm. saying that he would not be inviting Netanyahu 
to the White House because he understands that these reforms will are, are really intended to continue. Obviously, when America takes an assertive position, America has influence. Of course, it's not the only reason, but nobody can ignore Israel's best friend. That's from a perspective of what America can do. And why should America care? Well, Israel and America are stalwart allies. That alliance has always been at least phrased and justified largely in the sense of shared values, uh, both being a democracy. I think America has generally, certainly from the years of Israel's establishment, seen itself as a country that in, in its foreign policy should be advancing democratic values around the world. Now, I don't think America can create or manufacture democracies. That does not work out well. But America should have an interest in advancing democracies in the world because democracies are better ways for people to live under those regimes. Democracies are generally less likely to go to war with each other. And having a good, stout, strong ally in the Middle East is good for America for its Middle Eastern relations as well. Um, you know, the Middle Eastern countries that Israel has been making friends with don't really care if Israel's democratic, but they do care if Israel's if Israel is ultranationalist and aggressive to Palestinians and expansionist and annexationist. And those things cannot be separated, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the more Israel advances those things, the less democratic it will be, the more difficult it will be for America's foreign relations in the Middle East, for values and for hard national interests, America should care about this issue. Well, Dalia Shendlin, a fellow at Century International, a columnist at Haaretz and a public opinion researcher and international political strategist, she joined us today from Tel Aviv. Dahlia, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.